Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming out to the ARIA to spend some time with me today. My name is Andy Troutman. I'm a senior manager here at AWS. Uh, I mostly focus on our developer tools, both the tools that Amazon developers, uh, the engineers that build the services you use, use, as well as our public services like uh, the code suite. So code deploy, code pipeline, code commit, code star. I could keep coding all day. Um, <laughs> today I'm going to talk to you about uh, how Amazon releases mission critical software. I, I love reInvent because I get to spend some time in the room with a lot of customers. And they always ask the same set of questions every single time. They say, um, they ask, uh, why, how does Amazon do what it does? How do you guys release so many features and functionalities all the time? How do you manage it? And so I always immediately ask, why do you care? <laughs> um, because I suspect what they think is happening in the background is that somewhere on the Amazon campus, we have a magical unicorn. And that magical unicorn ensures that anything that an engineer writes, no matter how good or bad, is safely ushered into the cloud via magic. And um, the reality is it's not that way at all. It's a lot of sausage making. <laughs> um, there are a, a lot of things that we've built up and invested from a tooling perspective over the years that allow us to move very quickly and ship software globally. So if you're coming here expecting to learn about magical unicorns, um, probably not going to get there. I can probably teach you how to make unicorn sausage, though. So we'll, we'll, we'll make a unicorn sausage, and hopefully that will work out. So to motivate this a little bit, um, Amazon is pushing a ton of software uh, through our tools and services. So um, at any given time, if you went and looked at our deployment tools, we're executing thousands of deployments every second of every day, all day, every day. Right? So that um, uh, tens of thousands uh, during peak periods when we're scaling up for big events like this. Um, by and large, we are pretty good at not causing harm. So we're not uh, causing impact to you, the customer. So um, we measure impact in sort of three dimensions. We measure um, how long the impact was, so how long you had to live with a degraded experience, uh, how many people had to experience that problem, right? So uh, one customer noticing a problem is better than a million customers. Uh, and then just outright prevention. So can we just never, uh, can we find and fix problems before they ever reach a production server. So most of the time, we're pretty good at this. We're, last, uh, last time we measured, 99.996% of the time, the code that we end up putting in production doesn't cause any issues. We are, of course, unhappy with that. We want to get to 100%. The goal is that every piece of code that we ship either gets kicked out of the process before it reaches customers' hands because it wasn't ready for customers, uh, or it is successful. So. Uh, the good news is that the way we do this, the way we manage this, is really a, a story of tooling. So we've invested a ton in our own tooling and automation that allows us to manage a lot of software and to, uh, and to in a safe, repeatable, fast, reproducible manner. Most of the tools and services that we've built over the years, we've uh, aggressively tried to externalize. So things like CloudFormation and the code suites all the code services that I was just mentioning. These look very much like the tools we use internally. And in many cases, more and more and more, all of the new things that we build are built on top of the new AWS services. So um, this is a good thing. This means that if you, uh, if you want to make your own unicorn sausage, most of the tools that we use are available to you. Uh, and as I'll talk about a little bit later, a big emphasis is on making basic platforms that are very extensible. And that's important because the unicorn sausage that you make isn't going to look like the unicorn sausage my, I make. right? Uh, you need to optimize for your environment, your tech stack, your culture, your business. Uh, and as you'll see, Amazon really doesn't have a single way we do things. We have a bunch of tools that allow us to uh, standardize some common things and then extend them where we need to. So you can do the same. Uh, just real quickly, what the talk is going to look like. Um, to really tell the story of how Amazon ships software, we have to talk a little bit about Amazon's culture, uh, which played a big role in how we organize architecturally. Uh, understanding that transformation is uh, important before we talk about tooling. Then we'll talk about how we, uh, how we uh, build and invest in tooling. Uh, where, how do we continue to innovate there? 
Then we'll go through the process of a software change in detail. So we'll, we'll talk about the code review process, the build, pre-mortems, pipelining and deployment. Uh, we'll also talk about how we manage infrastructure. So most of this talk is going to be software change, so you know, um, updating microservices. Uh, but we'll also talk a little bit about the underlying infrastructure and how we manage that because it um, follows a lot of the same processes and also needs a lot of tooling to make it work successfully. And then I'll wrap up. This talk usually ends a little bit early, so I'll have time to answer questions if people have any. So uh, let's meet our hero. Uh, the hero for our talk today is going to be a change. Uh, it doesn't matter what that change is. One of the key tenets of our release process is that all changes are treated exactly the same, right? So if it is a large uh, set of new features or services or a single um, spelling error correction on a website, it flows through the same release process every single time, right? The, the predictability, the reproducibility, the reliability is really important. So uh, from our perspective, it doesn't really matter what this change is. Let's assume it is the most benign thing possible, right? So let's just assume um, we made a capitalization error, which you will probably be able to find many of in these slides. Uh, to get started, as I said, let's talk about the organizational structure. So Amazon, um, if you've read anything about the way we're structured, you've probably heard this concept of two pizza teams. So a very long ago, um, someone asked Jeff, how big should a team get? Uh, and he said, no bigger than what you can feed with two pizzas, right? And so, <laughs> which is a very ambiguous answer. You could have a very hungry team, uh, and that could just be one engineer working really hard, I suppose. Um, or you could have a, a very uh, healthy team, and two pizzas will feed eight people. Um, the average team size in Amazon is still eight engineers. When teams get bigger than that, we start to talk about does it make sense for this to be decomposed into multiple teams? Do we need to break it up? The reason we care so much about team size is because communication cost is expensive, right? To keep everyone in the loop about what's going on, what changes are happening, what we need to be focused on, the more people you add, the more people you have to communicate and get on the same page and keep aligned. And so there's an ROI to adding an additional person. And we find that you know anything sort of north of eight or nine engineers you start to pay like a real communication burden to keep everyone kind of on the same page, right? And so as that starts to happen, as you start to get much bigger than that, we really are looking for ways to like break the teams down. So once we have one of these two pizza teams, the other aspect of Amazon's culture is that we really emphasize kind of end-to-end -end ownership. Uh, that two pizza team, I always describe Amazon as built as a federation of startups more than a single uh, corporate entity. <laughs> Uh, we, push, we make those two pizza teams, we give them a, a goal, right? We say, this is the area of the business we want you to optimize for, and then we give them a lot of autonomy and decision-making abilities. We ask that team to pick the tech stack they use, we ask that team to pick the ratio of roles that they have on the team, so how many engineers are they gonna have, how many system administrators, DevOps specialists, product managers, managers, we want them to kind of tune and own that, QA people. Um, they, they get to pick the roles. And then we ask them to really own the service end to end, right? And so that means that two pizza team carries the pager for the service, they define their business metrics, they define their operational metrics, they, they determine how they alarm and monitor things. They really are kind of intended to be, you know, a single isolated unit that kind of fully owns their business. Um, that's really important for many reasons. This allows them to hyper-optimize, it allows them to move quickly, uh, and it gives them a lot of stake in the game. So we build these teams, we build these two pizza teams, we uh, empower them, we say, go at it, uh, figure out how to be successful. And um, as a result of this, what we found is that um, we needed a set of architectural principles that would sort of codify this idea of small independent teams and still make it sustainable. So what we ended up with was really what we today call service-oriented architectures. Um, many, many years ago, back when uh, AWS didn't exist and we were just Amazon in the early, early days, in the dream period, um, we looked just like a lot of other 90s startup monoliths, right? So we had a singular database, it was the Amazon Books database. It uh, kept track of books, sales, credit card information, everything, right? It, it kept track of everything, one big monster. And uh, anyone could go into the database and pull the information they needed, anyone could mutate it, 
And very, very quickly, as we started to get big in scale, we realized this was just going to be completely unsustainable, right? Um, we just gridlocked ourselves. No one owned anything. And so uh, Jeff Bezos sent out you know, a, um, a famously, one of his famously terse but very direct emails, which essentially said, we shall um, build services. Those services will have a public contract. We will communicate with each other through that public contract. We will not share data. Go. <laughs> and so that, so that was sort of like, uh, from the top, let's go figure out how to untangle this rat's nest. And so we ended up with a service-oriented architecture. So we'll visualize our change as living in a little bubble, which we'll call a service. There's a lot of niceties about living uh, in a service. As I said, you have a nice public contract that you is the only way people can talk to you, which means you get a lot of freedom to refactor and change things in the back end. When we talk about a, an AWS service, uh, let's just take EC2 as an example. Uh, there's the public contract, which is really what you, the customer, think of as a service. But if you look in the back end, this is really a collection of dozens of microservices, maybe hundreds of microservices, depending on the, uh, the complexity of the service we're talking about. Right? Um, so, the surface, so there's an iceberg effect here. The surface area that you, the customer, or that the engineering team has to care about is relatively thin relative to the amount of other things going on in the background. And we're constantly refactoring in the back end. Right? We're, we're um, combining services, we're killing services, we're adding new. We're constantly um, reorganizing things to optimize for the way our customers are using our services. And largely that goes unnoticed uh, because we've decoupled a lot of the details from the public interface. As long as we can preserve that contract, we're good. The other really nice thing about a service-oriented architecture is that we can specialize, right? Um, uh, probably a, a great example is IAM, so our identity and access management services, um, which is how we control permissions and a bunch of other aspects of the, our security story for customers. It would not be good if EC2 had to figure out identity and access management for itself. In fact, it would be a really bad thing because they would probably get it wrong because security is hard and it's really easy to convince yourself you've done it right and then lo and behold, you haven't. So we want people specializing on that and thinking hard about that and being industry leaders in that. And that's the IAM team. Meanwhile, the EC2 team can focus on what they need to be good at. They need to be reducing costs for customers and making new compute types available and uh, going where the, uh, skating where the puck is going from a compute perspective. Because we have services and we have these nice contracts, they can get huge amounts of leverage from each other. EC2 doesn't really know, need to know all the ins and outs of how IAM works. We just call the public service and we make sure that the resources that customers are trying to access, they have permissions to. It's a very simple, straightforward approach. The other thing here is consistency, right? We build one IAM service, it behaves one way. Um, that's incredibly important when you're using an ecosystem of AWS web services, right? You, you guys don't want to have to go figure out 10 different ways to do IAM for 12 different services. That would be a nightmare. So, I've talked about sort of the 10,000-foot view, the architectural view. I'm going to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum just very briefly and talk about what the local development process looks like. Um, so you see our change has a cowboy hat on, uh, and that's because our local development process is pretty wild, wild west. Um, there's not a lot of rules when we're talking about what an engineer is doing on their cloud desktop or their laptop. In fact, we really are as hands-off as possible, right? So, most teams follow at a high level an agile process, and by agile I mean we want people to iterate quickly, we want them to release things and learn from it and then continue to release. We're big fans of, of fast incremental delivery as opposed to these uh, big bang services. Um, we are confident that once the process, the release process starts, that we'll be able to catch problems. And so we try and be as laissez-faire about the local development process as possible because this is where uh, the speed of iteration really matters, right? The ability to edit, run, and debug in that tight loop to experiment as a, as a software developer is really important, and you just want things to get out of the way. One of the nice things of, about a, service, a microservices architecture is that, for the most part, you can run these microservices on a single box, right? So you can run a copy of a microservice on your laptop or on your dev, dev desktop, uh, and it can participate in the ecosystem of services just like anything else. This uh, also makes uh, development locally a lot easier, a lot faster. You don't have to stand up the constellation of things and keep them uh, up to date and wired together. Uh, you can just focus on a microservice that you're working on right now. So let's talk about the tooling philosophy that came out of 
sort of uh, this idea that we would start structuring as two pizza teams and that we would move to a service-oriented architecture. Very quickly, once we started to build web services, we realized we needed to invest in tooling to manage those services because we started to proliferate services very quickly, right? So we went from one problem to another, which was <laughs> we got really good at writing services fast, uh, but managing them became challenging. So we started to build really foundational tooling. So there's three things that I think we did right when we started to invest in our own tooling. The first was that just like AWS services, we focused on building blocks first, right? So if you remember when AWS was really getting started, we really first focused on foundational services and tools, right? Um, we, we focused on blob storage with S3. We focused on compute with EC2. SQS is, is just a queue, right? So really the building blocks that people need to build modern web applications, internet scale applications. Same way with the tooling. We built the simplest possible deployment system we could think of. It would take bits from a known place and it would put it on a box and it would run some scripts for you and that would be it. Uh, same way with, uh, with our build processes. You know, uh, you, you, would, uh, you would submit a build, we would spin up a compute node, we would run the build and then we'd put the artifacts where you told us to. So just very uh, foundational tools. The next thing we did was we encouraged an internal marketplace within Amazon. So we built these really simple tools. We made them very extensible. Um, they were really easy for people to, to uh, add business logic to and to optimize and to improve on. And we really encouraged that. So we let teams, these two pizza teams, really optimize for their particular business using our, um, our platform sort of developer tools. And boy, did they ever, right? So, <laughs> Um, many people made big investments to optimize their business, to optimize their release processes. And over time, what we did was we looked for winners in that sort of internal Darwinian ecosystem, right? We looked for things that were uh, taking off, that were, that were being successful, that were getting adoption. So uh, these, these, micro, these little uh, two pizza teams would start to share solutions with each other and we could watch and see which solutions are actually working and which ones are sort of dead ending, right? So not every experiment works, right? Um, as the centralized team, we just did not have the ability to adopt every single good idea, right? We had to wait to see which ones were really going to succeed and be broadly applicable, right? So we really do think of ourselves as platforms uh, that the rest of the business kind of sits on. So um, once we found those winners, you know, we would fund them. And by funding, I mean sort of resourcing. So additional engineering overhead, we might take one of those ideas and turn it into its own two pizza team. So this process of mitosis continues all the time. So let's talk about our antagonists. We have the change. Um, the change needs to go through a process. The process is our villain in the story <laughs> because our change is not going to get in anyone's hands without making it all the way through the process. Um, the process is incredibly pessimistic towards the change. From the perspective of our release process, we view all change as absolutely evil. It is nefarious by uh, nature and intent. We assume that even that single capitalization uh, hidden beneath it is the seeds of our destruction, right? So every change must throw, flow through an incredibly pessimistic process. And our goal is to kick change out of the process as early as possible. Right, so the game we're playing is to really get rid of change. Go ahead. So why is that? I'll get to that. <laughs> uh, so the question was, why is that? Why do, why do we have such a pessimistic process? Um, the reason we have such a pessimistic process that we really try and kick things out is that we pipeline a ton of changes, right? So for every one of these microservices, we're releasing dozens of times a week. And without a process that, that is aggressively kicking things out, what we notice is these pipelines get stuck, right? They get stuck in some integration environment um, or they make it to production and then we discover that we have a problem and the process of undoing a problem once it's sort of escaped the lab is incredibly costly. And this ended up with pipelines that don't flow freely, right? Our goal is volume of change into customers' hands, right? And so because we are breaking up these changes into, into small consumable bits, uh, it, we would rather kick them out as quickly as possible, right? So that is why the process is so pessimistic, intentionally so. This is what has really allowed us over the years to ratchet up that quality bar to get to that 99, 996 reliability when we release things is because we're incredibly aggressive about kicking things out and letting the pipeline continue to flow. So let's talk about um, some of these tools, right? Uh, most change at Amazon is born within Git. Uh, 
that is sort of our core foundational version control du jour at Amazon. And as I said, once we um, put Git in the hands of our engineers, we discovered that they started to make optimizations to it or to ask for optimizations. And so Git within Amazon became Git Farm. And so Git Farm has a couple of niceties that uh, we think have really paid off, paid dividends for us. One is replication. So if you push to a Git server in Amazon, we're actually going to globally distribute it, right? So uh, this just to make sure that we never lose any intellectual property that we push into our revision control system. Um, we did not uh, get enough out of uh, vanilla Git's access, access control model. We wanted much more fine-grained access control, and I'll talk about why that is. Um, but we really wanted to access control things at the individual level, at the file and branch level. We really wanted to get into um, a level of detail. We also wanted it integrated with our internal identity and org chart management things. Uh, and so we had to bake a lot of additional access control onto vanilla Git. Anytime you submit a piece of code into the Git repository, it's automatically indexed and searchable by the entire company. So Amazon still, even though we're quite large, believes that code sharing allows us to move very fast. These two pizza teams learn from each other by being able to search for, for common solutions and patterns. Right? So for the vast majority of the code that we push, it ends up going into a global index and being searchable and discoverable. We can learn from each other really quickly. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't say many of these things that we've built inside of Git Farm, we also built as a first-party citizen for code commit. So when we decided to release our own version control, um, we made sure that the things that we wanted to depend on were in it so that we could use it ourselves. So we finally have a change. Uh, it's in a revision control system, and now we really want to get going. So the first thing that we always start with is code review. So our code review process um, isn't particularly interesting. Our code review tool is, you know, shows you diffs. You can comment on them. You can eventually say ship it. Um, some of the things that we extended uh, in our code review process, we invested a lot in a rules engine that sits on top of it, so we could be really specific about the types of reviewers we want for our code reviews. So for a lot of code reviews, you know, a baseline of two engineers from the team should look at it. We're good to go. Other changes are more sensitive. Um, if we're changing core algorithms in foundational services, that's a very sensitive thing to change. Uh, we might say what we really want is a principle level review of that code before we ship it. Uh, for compliance reasons, we may have third party auditors or people outside of the team that need to be aware of the code that we're shipping and changing. We, again, we want to push that as, as early into the release process as possible, right? We don't want to put something in production and then ask the auditors to look at it and tell us, like, no, we need to undo it. That's a, that's a painful day. So we push everything really early into the process uh, as far back as we can. So we can create these rules where we can say, you know, uh, code in this branch or repository or these files, if they're ever touched, need, you know, um, three reviewers, one from the auditing team, uh, a principal engineer, and anyone else from the team, right? So this rules engine has, has uh, allowed us to make sure that we have the right people looking at code as we review it. Uh, the build process. Sorry, did I miss this line? No? no? Okay, no, sorry. The build process. Uh, Amazon still today has a, a global dependency closure. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if you depend on a standard library, um, I'm old, so let's just pick a Java library, uh, <laughs> uh, Spring. Let's say you're, you're going to depend on Spring. Um, Amazon has one copy of Spring. Right? And everyone depends on that copy of Spring. And we know that you depend on that copy of Spring. Uh, rinse and repeat. Every, every dependency you want to take in Amazon lives in a centralized repository. And as part of um, building your service, you declare dependencies on your direct dependencies. And then we'll do the transitive closure of their dependencies. And you end up with something that looks like a directed graph. Right? Um, there's a couple advantages and then disadvantages to this process. One of the advantages is that we're hyper aware of where software is used in our ecosystem, right? So we can very quickly answer a question about who is using what. This is super helpful when we're trying to remediate problems. Uh, when we discover that Struts has a security vulnerability, we can immediately answer who is actually using the compromised version of Struts, and we can kick it out of our system pretty aggressively. Other things that happen in build, um, probably not that surprising. Unit testing is a big part of the build process. Uh, static analysis, we're big believers in find bugs and 
um, and security static analysis and a bunch of other tools. We've built our own static analysis tools to try and catch common programming errors as early, again, as early as possible. The other thing we can do is we can block bad software. So as I was saying, we, um, because we have this global dependency closure, we are hyper aware of who's using what. And when we find something that we don't want to be used anymore, we can very quickly um, make it so that, the, that things that depend on that bad version of software can no longer build, right? And so we don't want to grind the whole company to a halt, but if something, you know, a security vulnerability is eyebrow raising, we want to stop the proliferation of that problem immediately, right? So, uh, the global dependency closure really gives us the ability to do that. So we've, had, we've got a piece of code. We checked it in. Um, everyone finally signed off on it. We built it. Luckily, it wasn't depending on anything verboten. Now we can actually start the release process. But before we do, for many changes, we will go through a pre-mortem process. So a pre-mortem process is a correction of errors. So you, if any of you have written COEs or um, post-mortems um, for outages or bad events, we just go ahead and rewrite that doc up front, <laughs> right? And in many cases, the doc looks the same as the one you would write after the event. We think really hard about all of the bad ways the software could potentially cause impact, and we ask ourselves all of the five whys. You know, um, what, uh, what is the worst day we could have with this software release? What happens if that happens? How do, we, how do we mitigate it? How do we reduce the chance that this happens? If it does happen, how do we fix it, right? So. Uh, data corruption is, is a notoriously hard thing to fix once it happens, right? Uh, so we spend a lot of time walking through the details of what will happen for a large piece of change. We do not go through this process for everything. I want to be clear. The CD tenants say that we should ship code frequently, um, but we also don't want to um, be too religious about our process, right? So if we're, if we're making code changes, large code changes or code changes to a very sensitive area of our code base, we want to go through this process. We want to really uh, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure we're doing it right. Okay, so we're finally ready to go to the mountain. So <laughs> Amazon usually follows it, you know, a uh, sort of a, a three-tier uh, release architecture, right? So you have test environments. Test environments are uh, the cowboy hat, they're Wild Wild West. It's a, it's a bunch of uh, local services uh, that are not configured like production. They're oftentimes in various um, out-of-date states. They don't match production. It's really a place for engineers to, uh, to test out new ideas. Uh, much of what goes on in tests doesn't really matter. Integration. Integration looks like production. It's configured like production. And services that are in the integration environment call dependencies uh, using their public production endpoints. Right? So we don't. once we get to integration, we are calling the public contracts for any external services we depend on. Uh, we do not want to rely on their best intention integration environments. We want to call exactly what we would experience in production. And then production is exactly what you think it is. It's uh, in the customer's hands and everyone is using it now. So this process um, is long <laughs> and getting longer. Uh, as, as many of you are probably aware, as AWS customers, AWS is a, is a global footprint, right? We are in 20 different regions and we've pre-announced five additional ones that'll be coming soon. That breaks down to 58 availability zones. So in availability zone, the promise we make is in a given region, we don't want correlated failure between availability zones, which means we can't change software in two availability zones in the same region at the same time. Uh, because there's a good chance that when you change software, you have the potential for impact. We don't want to break that promise for customers. We also have 144 CloudFront pops, and they continue to add all the time. And that's just the AWS side of the business. Many of these tools are used for Amazon.com, who has its own uh, fault isolation containers. Um, so what that looks like is a very long pipeline. <laughs> so this is actually a picture of, this is a picture of one of our pipelines, one of our internal pipelines. So this pipeline, um, the, the columns is a stage in the release process. And the, the depth of the column is essentially the set of checks that we run in that stage, right? So this could be integration tests, this could be sign-off, um, time windows, a bunch of things that I'll talk about. Um, you may notice that this slide is cut off. <laughs> this is not our entire release pipeline. This is just what I could shrink to, to help uh, visualize it. Uh, as I said, many of these pipelines are hundreds of stages long. So you can imagine, if you um, try to do this in a manual way, so if you went old school and you um, elected some poor soul to be your release engineer that week, and you said, 
you know, um, Jamie, I want you to get this change released to all the regions by the end of the week, right? And they uh, made a wiki page, and then they're like checking off regions as they go, and they're running the test manually. Like, it's completely unsustainable. That would be just for one microservice. We're running dozens of microservices and releasing dozens of times a week, right? So it cannot be done, uh, even if you had a brain in a jar, and that's all they did. Uh, they would just go crazy, right? So tooling has to keep track of this. It has to ensure that it happens consistently uh, and is reproducible, right? The process, this is really the visualization of the process. So the process, of course, thinks it's beautiful. Okay, so when we started to build these pipelines and they started to get very complex, as you saw, we needed to add a bunch of checks and balances to make sure that we had something safe and reliable that would uh, keep up with the pace of our business. So we built a bunch of primitives. Um, the ones I'm gonna talk about today are the ones that I think, if you're trying to build your own release process, these are the things that I would invest in first. They, they carry the best ROI. So get these foundational pieces in place and then hyper-optimize. The first, of course, is manual approvals. When you first get started trying to move to a continuous delivery model, um, don't be cavalier. <laughs> don't just say it's a that it's safe and continuously deploying. Put checks and balances in. Make sure people can audit the code and, and sign off on it. Um, when you're working with compliance people, they really like to be able to see that they can stop something and take a look at it before it makes its way out the door. Um, we also, time windows is another sort of foundational piece of this. Everyone has that nightmare story where they, the intern was leaving to go back to school and it was Friday, it was his last day in the office and you know, he was working really fast to try and get everything done and, and we let him deploy and then we're all ordering pizza for the weekend because we have to try and fix what the poor intern did, right? So um, don't, let, don't let that happen to you, right? Don't, don't release on a Friday afternoon. You know, by and large, we like to release software when people are in the office, so we try and release our code during business hours when engineers are engaged and present and paying attention, and there's multiple people there that can help out. This is a mind shift from the way we used to do it. We used to wait till the wee hours of the night to try and do things at, at the lowest point. Because our process has gotten pretty reliable and mature, uh, we find that the mean time to reduction of an error actually is much faster if we do it during business hours when people are engaged. You don't have to wake people up and have them, you know, knock the sleep out of their eyes and then try and figure out what's going on. Testing should be obvious. Um, the tests that we invest in a lot, uh, canary testing or what you might call continuous testing. So that public contract, that interface for all these microservices, we test that continuously all the time with, our, with synthetic traffic. We're running through the scenarios that are most common for our customers. This gives us a nice background radiation of scenarios constantly being exercised, which gives us the ability to monitor an alarm on individual API calls, right? So we're constantly getting uh, history, uh, which says whether or not those APIs are succeeding or failing, and that allows us to be really aggressive with our own monitoring and alarming. Frequently, we can catch problems before customers catch them because we're calling the APIs much more aggressively than customers are. Uh, we also do a lot of scale and, per and perf monitor um, testing particularly in our integration stages as we're moving to production, right? So integration is where we really have right-sized the, uh, the service to look like production, and then and we hit it as hard as we can to make sure that it's gonna sustain the load we expect. Global Anton cords. So uh, if, all, if any of you are Lean Six Sigma junkies, you probably know what an Anton cord is, but for the rest of us who have real lives, um, <laughs> which is not me, because I know what it is. Um, uh, the, the concept of the Anton cord came out of Toyota's uh, lean process. So Toyota decided many, many years ago on the assembly lines for cars, they would have a physical cord that anyone could pull. So uh, anyone on the assembly line working on a car could pull this cord and it would, it would stop the entire assembly line, right? So um, for those of you who don't know a ton about manufacturing, when the assembly line is not moving, dollars are not happening and people are mad, right? So this was a very controversial decision. And they told everyone on the assembly line, if you see a problem of safety or quality, go ahead and pull the cord, we'll stop, we'll figure out what it is, we'll ask the five whys right there on the assembly line, and then we'll fix it and move forward. So this, this was one of those things where it's like, they were sort of uh, laughed out of the industry when it was introduced. And then lo and behold, several years later, they were, they were one of the most reliable manufacturers of automobiles in the world, right? And they saw great success by empowering the frontline engineers uh, assembly workers. We do the same thing with our software release. So we have a global and on cord on our pipelines. Not just your local pipeline, but if you see something fishy happening while you're releasing software on a critical service, 
you can pull a global and on card. We will stop all of the deployments at Amazon company-wide if we need to. Uh, and because if we actually have a large-scale event, it is much harder to troubleshoot that if the sand is moving from underneath of you, right? So you don't want change to continue to happen while you're trying to figure out what went wrong. So um, we, we, we um, have found that this is incredibly helpful in, uh, in fixing and remediating problems, large-scale problems. Finally, attribution and roles is very important. So being able to, um, for a release, tie it all the way back to the engineer that submitted the code is incredibly important. Being able to, to be able to say who reviewed it, who understands this code, um, what potentially is going wrong. These things also um, add a lot of value when we're talking about remediating real-time problems uh, you know, as quickly as possible, right? When minutes count, being able to quickly engage uh, who is involved with a change is really important. So you really need that traceability all the way back to the commit. So those are things that we invested in in the pipelining, so deploying microservices. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about some of the actual features of the deployment itself, right? So updating an individual microservice, what does that look like? The first, the first primitive is automatic rollbacks. So of course, we don't want engineers to have to be paged and engaged in order to remediate uh, a bad deployment. We want to tie all of our metrics and monitoring to alarms, to CloudWatch events, to any metrics that we care about that may go north or south, depending on what is bad, uh, and just automatically remediate issues by rolling them back. We may occasionally roll something back that was a false alarm. Better to have a false alarm rolled back than to not roll back something as quickly as possible. When we introduced this, we saw drastic reduction in mean time to resolution, right? So we saw the time it took to remediate issues go from 20 minutes down to minutes, right, to, in, to singular minutes. And that was because we were no longer paying the cost of having an engineer wake up and log in and start to try to wrap their head around what's going on. Um, we roll back first, ask questions later. Incremental release, if you uh, are, are running a large fleet, you of course do not want to update it all in one big go. Uh, that's, that's a very Vegas approach, just bet it all, right? <laughs> Hope it works, double your money, double your throughput. Um, but the real world, most people wouldn't do that, right? So we're big fans of one boxing, canary testing, whatever you want to call it, right? Deploy it onto a single host, let it soak for a little while. And a little while could be, uh, we actually like to measure things from the, the perspective of requests. So we can soak things based on time, but we can also soak things and say, we want to see 1,000 requests to this API, and it must sustain this success rate, right? Before we'll let it go forward. Or 1,000 API requests, which must meet this minimum latency. Right, so being able to really see that it is exercised before we move forward is important. Um, so being able to ramp up slowly is, is very important. For really large fleets, you also need to be able to ramp up exponentially, right? So if I'm deploying to 10,000 uh, EC2 instances, I do not want to do them two at a time. I might want to do one, then two, then five, then 10, and I very quickly want to ramp up to something faster um, just because I don't want the deployment to take days. Long-running deployments also have their problems. Changing software, health tracking. So despite all your best efforts, you will not catch everything in testing, unfortunately, and you will eventually end up in a situation where something has partially rolled out and you didn't notice it, and you now are in a mixed mode situation where you have some healthy nodes that are serving your customers, and then you have some that are broken or in a bad or degraded state. And what you really need to do is roll forward to patch the ones that are broken. Uh, making sure that your deployment systems track at an individual compute node level, and so that node is generic term for virtual machine or container or uh, Lambda function, right? So whatever, whatever you're using as your compute resource, um, being able to say exactly which ones of those are in a compromised state and which are in a healthy state. Because when you go to patch, you don't want to patch all of the instances. In fact, you want to as much as possible leave those blue ones alone, right? Because they're healthy, they're actually doing what you want. If you were to take those out of service before fixing the other instances, you actually make the problem worse, right? You, you, you go from a partial outage or a gray failure to a full outage. So the deployment system needs to keep track of this for you. If you're um, log diving to figure out which nodes got the deployment and which didn't, you're wasting valuable time. So just make sure that the systems understand this. Code deploy does this, <laughs> I guess I should say. Finally, um, just like we talked about attribution at the pipeline level, we also want to talk about change providence. We want to be able to say that a piece of code um, 
was, was checked in and approved by these people. We also want to say that this is the fingerprint for the build that was produced. We want to be able to say with confidence that that fingerprint is the one that matches the box that we deployed the software onto. And we want to be able to do that for all the nodes in the, in the fleet, right? So we want to be able to confidently say that what is running on a host matches exactly what was checked in. This seems subtle, but it's actually quite complicated. It, um, this was one of the hardest things for us to get right because there are just so many places that you have to make sure the providence tracks through. And so there was a lot of um, hole plugging to get this right. Um, but very important, right? Um, both from a security perspective as well as the question of where is bad software deployed? How do I fix it? So um, those are some of the primitives, as I said. Uh, if I was starting fresh and I was gonna build my own process, um, I would start with these things, right? Because I, I felt like over time, these are the things that have caught the most problems for us, have uh, allowed us to move more quickly and more confidently. And so um, there are many other optimizations we've built into the ecosystem, but these are the ones I would do first. Okay, let's talk about infrastructure. So infrastructure follows a very similar process in Amazon, that pipelining process where we go to a small amount of capacity and we release in a linear fashion using a, a visualization Infrastructure changes flow in that exact same way. We're huge believers in infrastructure, our uh, configuration is code. Uh, all of the infrastructure changes we make are via either CloudFormation or our own templating engine for things that CloudFormation doesn't support because we have foundational services that, uh, you know, that our AWS services are built upon. We have to have some way to configure and manage those as well. So we had to kind of extend CloudFormation for that purpose. Uh, eventually you hit the, the bottom turtle in the stack and so, um, there is no EC2 for EC2. Um, this process, the goal is to get down to a single day region build. So we want to be able to build a new geo in a single day. So once the hardware is in place, a 24-hour period to stand up all of the AWS services that are going to go into a region. Um, we've made a lot of progress. Um, many of my teams can deploy their entire ecosystem of microservices in about three days. A lot of that time that we're still uh, spending is waiting for dependencies. So, uh, as you can imagine, we have hundreds of, of AWS services, all uh, many of which depend on each other. Uh, and so you end up with a Gantt chart hell, right? So you, um, all of your dependencies have to be in place so that you can stand yourself up so that you can test what's going on. So that is the, that's the game that we need to invest more into. Right now, we still spend a lot of time just managing the interplay of services. Aside from that, it looks exactly the same. Um, we want to release code slowly. We want to make sure that it's configured and aud auditable. Uh, it flows through a predictable process and pipeline. All right, so we made it. <laughs> um, despite our best efforts to kick this piece of code out, it actually made it to production. Uh, it, is a, it is a good piece of code, right? It is a good change, good change. Um, unfortunately, uh, the process's job is never done, right? So um, we realized over the years that as we were getting better at raising the bar on the quality of our release processes, we, were getting, we weren't very good about fixing old systems and services, right? So um, the quality bar was rising, but things weren't keeping up, right? And so net new things, we're, we're getting all the new and best practices and things that were built two years ago uh, were not, right? And so to fix that, we started um, by creating auditing tools, right? So we actually have tools that go and look at the structure of all the pipelines within Amazon that look at the way their deployments are configured, that look at the amount of testing that is happening at everything. And we have a rules engine that says, you know, these are, these are, the, way, these are the patterns that we know are safe and successful. And we can make that available to customers in the form of risks, right? So we can actually share like, hey, your pipeline doesn't look like it deploys to an AZ at a time. It looks like you deploy to a bunch. Why is that? Like, can you fix that? Um, hey, you're missing testing. You don't have any integration testing before you're going to production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those best practices that I've been talking about. Um, we found that giving the data to customers or to you know, partners was incredibly empowering. They could go self-serve. Uh, still, um, what we discovered was many people were not making the time to fix things that uh, they weren't kind of actively thinking about. So the next step was we introduced uh, a little bit of a, a gaming mechanism. So, we, let, we set a baseline set of expectations for teams and we said, um, any team who has a pipeline that ultimately deploys to customers needs to meet these baseline expectations, right? So we started very simple and we said, it has to have at least one stage of integration testing and it has to go uh, a region at a time, right? And so we said, everyone has to do this. If your pipeline doesn't do this, 
we're not going to let you deploy anymore. We're going to block it, right? And we gave people time to go fix the problems. And then once they did that, we added a few more rules. And so every year, we kind of throw another log on the fire, right? We add, we, add a, we add a few more rules. The real burden here is getting the old stuff up to date. Building new stuff is actually pretty cheap because it comes with all, this, all the defaults that we want. Um, then the next thing we did is we actually said, um, for an organization, you can create your own rules, right? So again, we want these two pizza teams to feel empowered. We want them to be able to move as quickly as they want and to own their own quality bar. So many teams took this and they built additional rules for their own systems and services to make sure that it was meeting all of their criteria, right? Uh, a real, uh, a concrete example, the storage space, so S3 has a lot of additional requirements about making sure that storage nodes deploy in a particular way, right? You do not want to take out two storage nodes that hold the same data, right? So they have a much more complicated release process that they wanted to codify in these rules. Uh, and then we um, basically shared how people were doing against their own rules with their organization, right? So we let people know how they were, how they were doing against their peers, and uh, competition always drives a result, a good result or a bad result. In this case, a good one. So um, without this auditing process, we just found that we were falling behind. We were getting some things to work, but ultimately not winning kind of the, the, long, the long tail war that we needed to win, right? Keep everything up to date. All right, I think we made it. Um, maybe a, a couple key points that I, if you're gonna take anything away from this. You know, Amazon standardizes a ton of software development processes into our platform. So uh, the way that we actually release things very quickly and at a high quality is because we invested a ton in tooling and we continue to invest a ton in tooling. Um, we encourage this open marketplace. We encourage people to innovate on top of the platform and then we look for good ideas and we try and steal them and bring them back to the platform. Um, we ship so much because we continuously ship everything to production. I don't think I made this, drove this point home very hard, but we're, we're really not a big fans of branching. So we don't want things to live in a branch for a really long time. We want people to be intentionally planning on releasing everything to production. Um, branches that are long lived are oftentimes where code goes to die from our perspective, right? So we really encourage people, release small things into production, learn from them, and then iterate as quickly as possible. Um, we're doubling down on our tools. Many of the tools that we built over the years we're externalizing aggressively and we ourselves are depending on. We figure if it works for us, hopefully it will also enable customers to build their own optimized process. All right, I think that's it. Thank you all for your time. Um, if you want, please leave me feedback. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left, so I was timed about right. I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, I do not think there are microphones, so if you want to yell, I'm happy to answer any questions people have. Right, so the question was, what do we do about documentation? So once we have a piece of code, how do we make sure that the documentation doesn't lag? Um, the AWS services are blessed in that we have a documentation team that rides along with us, so there are you know, that two-person team usually has a document writer that's kind of thinking about and keeping track of it. For other things, it's best efforts, you know, we're, we're doing, we're managing a lot of it in wiki pages. Honestly, we, we don't put a lot of faith in our documentation. We put a lot of faith in the code, the release process, and the quality bars, um, because that's really is sort of like where we think that we're going to get the most ROI. Yeah, we're using like wiki and Git for the most part. Other questions? No other questions. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I'll get you. Right. So the question was, how do um, because we have these very long pipelines, how do we keep things from stacking up at the very beginning when we're kind of waiting for approvals? So that pipeline really only starts once you have a successful build, and then it is fully automated from there on out. So the really slow processes of approvals and stuff happen sort of outside of the automation. That's one answer. The second is that we, um, we're running different versions of software in all those regions. So we're aggressively, once a region has, um, has an update, if there is another update available, we're immediately applying it on top, right? So across that really long pipeline, you could have a version and a different version in every single stage, right? So we're, we're spreading it out as, as quickly as possible. We also batch changes. So if there are two changes that are ready to go at the time we decide to pull them into a region, we'll just, we'll glom them into one and deploy it. So 
Um, I know batching is a bit of a religious <laughs> argument, but we find that um, being able to ship code through the process faster is better. So we'll batch. Uh, someone up here had a question. Yeah. That's great. Like, how do we manage the dependencies? Right. So uh, the question was, um, I, I mentioned that as part of our integration, in our integration environments, we're testing against public endpoints or production endpoints. Um, for, for the collection of microservices that a team owns, they're, they're calling the integration services. And for external services that depend on, they're calling production. So we are calling EC2's production endpoints if we depend on EC2. We are calling S3's public endpoints. Um, when a service, when a dependent service needs to make changes, that's a negotiation, <laughs> right? And so we're, we're going to go and, um, you know, make the case for why they should help us out. Amazon is also a huge believer in away teams, right? So uh, if a team cannot prioritize the thing you want because they don't have enough resourcing to do it and it's not the thing they should be working on, we're very open to letting away teams come in and make code contributions, right? So we will donate two or three engineers for a quarter, a month, a week, whatever it takes uh, in order to see things continue to happen. And most teams are very open to that. I'd say the, the foundational services, you know, EC2, S3, the deployment systems, the things that, that have a lot of dependencies, those teams are very good at taking away team resources, right? They've they set up processes over the years so that they can really integrate them in and get something out of the, out of the process. Also, as I mentioned, we, um, we have this global repository of, of code. Um, many teams just submit pull requests for small bug fixes, right? If it's a, if it's a small annoyance, you know, a lot of that's just going to come in in the form of a pull request. Hey, I went and looked up your code. It was doing this weird thing. I think this is, this is the problem. Like, please take my change. Um, those are pretty kind of standard. Over here. How do we track the... Um, like, uh, got it. Yep. So the question was, um, when we make a change to one of these microservices, how do we make sure that that doesn't impact the broader ecosystem? How do we know who's depending on us? We don't, um, but we are also very ironclad about preserving the behavior of existing APIs. So as I said, that that contract is, uh, that API contract is, is very solidified. And if we are going to make a change that is not backwards compatible, that's cutting a new version, right? So we're, we're aggressively cutting revisions uh, rather than trying to migrate customers because we don't have good visibility in who our callers are in some cases. Uh, external callers we do, but internal less so. No, we can. Yeah, so the question was, when we cut a new version of software, uh, does, everyone, do, does everyone have to move? We can do it at an API level, right? So um, we can even do it. If, if we're many like most changes are not backwards incompatible. If you're adding new uh, arguments, then you, you've kind of versioned it implicitly. Um, but yeah, you, we are not forcing our dependencies to, to migrate to new versions all the time. Um, if they want to take advantage of a new set of functionality or behavior of an API, that would be at an API level, a change. So, do you, uh, when you're auditing the pipeline for compliance, the question was for compliance purposes, is that an automated process or is that a manual process? The answer is both, right? So, we prefer automated, of course. So, as much as we can, um, any kind of basic checks that we can automate, we do. If we need a paper trail, a lot, a lot of compliance is just about showing that you've gone through a predictable process. Um, we, we work really directly with auditors and say, hey, rather than have you like audit this, let's show you our process. We have all of these niceties, like we can say exactly who checked in codes, we can say exactly who reviewed it, we, can, um, we have change providence all the way to where it's running. Can we just provide you this data rather than have you come in and stop the process? So, and, and in many cases, compliance auditors are comfortable with that, right? So long as we have that paper trail and they can retroactively look at it, they do. Um, some things not, right? Depending on who the customer is and their level of sensitivity, right? That doesn't always work. I think there was a question in the back. Is there still a question? Yeah, go ahead. You mentioned this is for external dependencies to get the front end 
Yes? Uh, yeah, so the question was, um, for external dependencies, uh, do we hit the prod endpoints even when we're doing load testing? Yes. <laughs> uh, when we are load testing, that is the load we're expecting. And so if our, if our prod dependencies cannot sustain that load, we have a real problem. Um, it, it might not sound as cavalier as it is. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things that we do. Of course, like if we are doing, if, if, it is, if we are treading new water, so if it is a new service release, that's a very planned and intentional thing, right? We're gonna go to that dependency and talk about and, and produce a, a, a scale testing plan together and talk about our, our expected throughput with each other. Um, but we very much in AWS have the mentality that the service has to protect itself, right? I have been in reviews of outages where uh, we, we performed a scale test and we knocked a service over or we browned it out or we, we caused a degraded experience. And the questions were for the service team that had the outage, not for the team that caused it, right? The question was, how did you let this happen? How could this one customer cause this much out, this impact, right? So we really focus on you know, throttling and load shedding and, and um, impact mitigation. We want the service to be stronger and resilient. And if, if, we, if we push the limits of what we were supposed to do with that service, the service should be able to shed that load. So that's, that's kind of the mentality we take. The question was about our code review process. Um, it, how standardized is it? Or are there any best practices? How do we do it? Um, uh, every two pizza team does it differently, <laughs> I would bet. Um, so yeah, it really is a broad spectrum. Other than being able to enforce particular roles and reviewers, we don't, we don't look at it beyond that at sort of like an automated level. You know, um, and within my own space, I have teams that are incredibly rigorous where it's like a sit down consultation, line by line kind of slog, and then other teams, it's much, much less formal, right? It's a quick spot check, looks good to me. Some teams have invested in codifying their, um, their process in terms of um, uh, rules. So like, again, like if, if we can push um, code quality into static analysis, we do, right? So, as much as we can do that, we, we, we try and rely on that, and then we're just focused on, will this cause a problem? Go ahead. How long does our integration test suite typically take to run? Um, uh, again, I don't, I, this isn't a cop-out, but every team different. Um, I can talk a little bit about my teams. So uh, very recently, the code deploy team had integration tests that ran for, uh, I believe, six hours. and everyone was furious, <laughs> and so we spent the time to go reduce it to sub-hour, right? So this is just another one of those debt things that we think really pays dividends, so we had to go through the process of paralyzing all of our tests and spinning up multiple tests at the same time. But um, we, we, want, we do not want it to take a long time, right? It, on a typical day, we may have multiple changes that we want to see released that day. A six-hour integration test process really doesn't allow us to do that. Two, two runs of, of a six-hour integration test and you're already having people stay late to be able to get something out the door. Um, so uh, we're, we're pretty aggressive about reducing it. And I think most teams are, right? We, we really want it to be crisp. I'm, I'm just gonna do two more questions just for a heads up, but go ahead. Uh, the question was sort of an extension of the code reviews one. So. How do we balance sort of feedback for the engineer versus confidence in? Got it. Yeah. So the question was, if we have this six-hour integration test run, how can how can engineers like really? Uh, rapidly test and, and build confidence in that what they're doing is right. Is that a, a fair summary? Yeah, so um, the, the full suite takes six hours. Every engineer has the ability to run a subset of those tests or local tests. So typically, if you are working on an individual microservice, you're probably executing a subset of those integration tests related to the change you're making. And that's giving you a reasonably high confidence that what you're doing is going to work. And then before it actually hits production, we're gonna hit it with every, the kitchen sink, right? So most engineers are, are doing a subset of testing locally as they're, as they're figuring things out, and then the suite will happen later. Uh, let's do one more, I think. Yes, go ahead. 
So what is our definition of a change? Um, change, um, it varies, right? So a change, anytime we are changing um, a unit to a new version of something, so a very generic definition, so that unit could be an entire microservice, it could be a single box within um, an ecosystem. Um, so it varies widely. When we talk about deployments, those deployments could be spinning up a new host, uh, or that deployment could be um, a, a f deploying to a fleet of 10,000 instances, right? So a, a deployment size is, is very elastic. If we talked about how many instance level updates, like we just talked about virtual machines, the other thing is we do um, functions, we, we, you know, we deploy to functions and that makes this even infinitely more complicated because do you want to talk about a function or do you want to talk about the collection of functions that makes an application? But for virtual machine updates, um, we do many, many more than a, a thousand updates a second, right? Because many of those are just instances coming online and getting the latest version of software. So we'll count both. Okay, that's all the time I have up on the stage. I will go out into the hallway, and if people still have questions, I'm happy to answer them. So thank you all for coming. <laughs>